Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Is that what you're supposed to say? Merry Palm Sunday? Not Mary. Um, uh, it's good to be with you guys. It's going to take me a while to get used to this. Um, Palm Sunday, a day that we celebrate at the beginning of Passover week. Many of you guys know what that is. Some of you guys don't, and hopefully along the way we'll learn what Palm Sunday is. But with millions of other Christians today, it's a day that we celebrate the kingship of Jesus. The kingship of Jesus. This, must, this feels like something that the Lord really wants to impress on us as a congregation. You know, I think back to last week in Kevin's message that God is on the throne. Kevin and I did not collaborate at all in their preparation, did we? No, we did not. Um... And one of the very first verses that he cross-referenced was Colossians 1, which is what we're going to be in today. So if you have a Bible, you can start to turn there, Colossians 1. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about Palm Sunday and how we're making our way to Colossians from this account. Kevin, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit longer last week because the 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 drive that I was listening to on from Miami to Ewing was it wasn't long enough. I don't know if you guys would have enjoyed that, but I would have enjoyed a little because there was people in the front seat, no names, that were snoring the whole time, not. Um, and so it, I would have really been blessed if it was a little bit longer. But it just it feels like when the Lord wants to really impress something on your heart, He's going to find lots of ways to do it, and I feel like that's. It's fun that we get to actually feel like he's doing that to us collectively. That for some reason, maybe as individuals, you'll know why, but for some reason, he really wants to push on us this idea of his kingship, that he is on the throne. That's what Palm Sunday is about. It's, a, it's an event that is um, uh, accounted for in all four Gospels, which is pretty rare. There's not many of them that span all four Gospels. And, the, and Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, is one of them. In the day's events, um, if you turn, or uh, as you heard uh, Pastor Greg reading from, there was cloaks and palm branches, cloaks being thrown down, palm branches being put down on the path that Jesus would travel. And this was all to embody the honor that's due this expected king. Luke even points out in Luke 19, uh, Kevin, can you throw this up there? Luke 19, the disciples set Jesus on the donkey, okay? It wasn't that he, like, climbed up himself. They actually helped him get him up there because this was, again, to embody the honor that he is due. The cries of adoration would follow. We sang in the last song, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna. Save us now. That's what Hosanna means. And these cries of adoration are uh, hearkening back to Psalm 118, 26, which is where they would say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why all this uh, pomp? Why all this adoration for this king? Matthew notes in his gospel, in Matthew 21, 4 and 5, that's where I'm at, this took place, all these things, palm branches, cloaks, 
crying out to him. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This was all taking place because there was major prophecies being fulfilled on Palm Sunday in the triumphal entry. There was major prophecies. There's one prophecy that's being fulfilled that we don't even see mentioned in the text, but is amazing. And I've heard uh, Pastor Greg teach on this before, and we don't have time to get into it, but Daniel 9 and the 70 weeks, most people, most scholars think that this, those 70 weeks that Daniel is, uh, uh, he's in a dream, Gabriel's talking to him, and it's talking about this time, this timeline prophecy that the Messiah will come according to this timeline, and that is fulfilled in this moment from Zechariah, or from, sorry, what's his name? Nehemiah. From Nehemiah and the, the, the building back of Jerusalem from cat- captivity to this point, this day, is the exact timeline needed to fulfill this prophecy. No one can do it before and no one can do it after. It's only this timeline. If you haven't heard about that or read about that, I encourage you, uh, Google Daniel 9 prophecy and you'll be just astounded. But anyway, in Zechariah 9.9, which Matthew 21 talks about, about say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. God spoke through Zechariah to give a picture of what his promised king would look like. What's he going to look like? You know, after the David's um, throne was kind of uh, taken away in a way, um, and it kind of moved on from the, the lineage of David, there would be, there need to be prophecy that told, how's that coming back around? How do we know, when we don't know all everyone's lineage, how do we know? And Zechariah 9.9 has that picture. And it's a picture definitely of a king. Let's, uh, if you want, oh, no, we have it up there. You don't have to turn with me. Zechariah, I'm going to turn there. The whole prophecy says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This prophecy is clearly about a king. He is righteous and victorious. His rule will extend to the ends of the earth. He will bring peace to all the nations of the world and freedom from those imprisoned. This is definitely a king, but it's an unexpected king. We see that it's unexpected in Zechariah. His righteousness and victory don't appear to be from strength or, or power. He comes lowly and riding on a donkey. You can't go to battle on a donkey. That's why, you know, in, in uh, you know, if you ever watch uh, Gladiator or, or um, uh, Braveheart, all right, they don't come riding into those battles on donkeys. They come riding in on war horses. And you can't destroy the Roman Empire, these people that are oppressing the Jewish people on a donkey. You can't fight your way to the throne, destroying all your enemies in your way, and claim your rightful role as king of Jerusalem if a war horse is your donkey. Is a donkey, sorry. 
The crowds coming into Jerusalem for the Passover were absolutely ready for their Savior, their Messiah. They were ready. That's what the triumphal entry and the cries of adoration are talking about. That their, their participation in his coronation are evidences that they are ready for him. But their king would finally deliver them from the oppressor of their land and their kingdom, the Roman Empire. As these crowds were flocking to Jerusalem for the celebration of their liberation from Egypt, the Passover, they are stirred to believe it is now time for their liberation from Roman rule. They're connecting the Passover with their deliverance from Roman rule. So Jesus, in a sense, is being rightfully declared the coming prince and king, as Zechariah points out. You know, he is even the one that kind of started the whole thing. He told them to go get the donkey. He was the one that brought this to fruition, that this, this prophecy would start to be fulfilled. He did that. But it's at this point in history that he's not arriving to set up his throne over all creation. Rather, he was being coronated to set up his cross. Up to this point in Jesus' life and ministry, whenever you'd see recognition of him being stirred up, what would he do? He'd quiet it. Thank you for the people that did this. That's what he would do. Every single time someone started to get excited about him and started telling other people, he'd say, shh, don't tell people about me. It's not my time. But we see that this is different. Instead of quieting people he receives it even so part where the pharisees are like you got to tell your disciples to be quiet and jesus says if they would be quiet then the very rocks would cry out he's receiving this so in a way he's rightfully being declared this but as i took some time to consider palm sunday it's a really inter interesting intersection between these amazing prophecies being fulfilled and then this strange proclamation of Jesus and his preeminence, but it's only a partial preeminence. It's not what he truly came for. It's still right, but it's not fulfilled completely. And so I've been kind of stirring over that, thinking about that, because at the week's end of Passion Week, the crowds would be, instead of cheering him and ador adoring him, they'd be scoffing at him and calling for his death. And the crown that they, gave, they kind of wanted to crown him with would end up being a crown of thorns. But on this side of history, where we stand today, this side of Palm Sunday, we should and can celebrate Jesus for who he is in all preeminence, exactly how he wanted to be celebrated. And we should do that. And to do that, we're going to look at Colossians. So hopefully you're there. This is where we left off. We're picking up where we left off in chapter 1 the last time I was up here. I lost my place, excuse me. And so, if you recall, there's a little backstory here. Paul is writing this letter to the Colossian church. And he's writing, and where we got through was basically Epaphras had come and told Paul all the amazing things that the Lord was doing in the church of Colossae. And Paul is so thankful for the work that the Lord is doing. He's, and he kind of starts to express that thankfulness back to the Lord. But then he says to the, the, uh, Col the Colossians, here's what I'm praying for you. 
Here's what I'm praying for you. He's, he's happy that the faith and love of the saints was being intensified and resourced by their hope in heaven. And then he says, here's what I want you to know. That the Lord, here's what I'm asking the Lord for on your behalf. That he would give you a knowledge of his will. And then that you, by his power, would put the knowledge of his will into practice as you live a life worthy of God. And so he, he shares what he's praying for them. And then he transitions out of that prayer in verses 13 and 14. Look down. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, sins. And so he transfers out of his prayer and he keeps talking about the one who is able to do all these things that he's praying for. I feel like at this point, it's like Paul is bubbling up. You know, but you shake like a like a can of soda, and then you open it, and it bubbles over. I feel like that's what Paul's doing. He's, you know, he gets really excited. There's a lot of run-on sentences in his letters, and I feel like he's just so excited to talk about Jesus. And he's, he's praying. He's, as he's praying, it's like, you know, I can ask for all these amazing things on your behalf because of who I'm asking. Let me tell you about him. Or, you know, Earlier in the prayer, he talks about inheritance. He's like, you know, I want you guys to know the inheritance that you are qualified for because of the father who has qualified you. And who is he? Who is his son? Let me tell you. You know, he's just getting so excited about these things. And he goes right from telling him about what he's praying to telling him about who he's praying to. And he starts to talk about Jesus in a pretty amazing way. Let's read verses 15 to 20. This is going to be our passage for today. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him in him." All things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I've, I'm thinking about this passage in two parts. Okay, and that's how we're going to go through it together. Two parts. The first part is 15 to 17, and the second part is 18 to 20. And in this first part, I want you guys to focus your gaze on the supremacy of Jesus, who he's talking about, because of his relationship to creation. Okay, the, the, the supremacy of Jesus because of his relationship to creation. There are some that think, and I, I think it's completely valid, that this section, 15 to 20, is like a hymn that the first church would have known. That everyone, as he says these things, as Paul writes down these things, I'm not left-handed, but it's the only hand I have. As he writes down these things, he's actually sharing something that they already knew, and he's just applying it to what he's trying, the point he's making. You know, in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, um, Paul talks about these trustworthy sayings. They're not scripture, but 
It's, yeah, look at this one. 1 Timothy 3.16. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's like a little catechism. Something that you would all remember, and it packs a lot of truth into one thing, and then you memorize it, and now you take that with you to always apply. Even 2 Timothy t- even says, this saying is trustworthy, and he does another one. There, people are, think that this um, 15 to 20 might be one of those sayings because of how parallel the passages work together. That you wouldn't write like that in just a letter, and so he writes like that and uses this hymn or this trustworthy saying to help them remember. It doesn't make too much of a difference because whether it's his words or another, per, uh, like the church's words, he's still applying it in the same way. So verse 15, let's start there. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Well, who is the he? Now, all of you guys are really good scholars, and so you'll know that that is Jesus. Well, how do we know that? Well, let's go to back up to 12 and 13. Chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It says, Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you, so the Father is doing the qualifying, to share in the inheritance of the saints and lights. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So he, God the Father, has delivered us and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom, now that now we've transferred to the Son, okay? In whom we have redemption. We have redemption in his Son, the forgiveness of, of sins. Then verse 15, he still, we're still on Jesus here, okay? So it's talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Ver, uh, Hebrews 1.3 says it this way. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So the one who's at the Father's side has made the Father known. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Now, we can try with our best, with our finite minds, to to try to understand who God is, to see him, quote-unquote, to see him. But do you think we're ever going to be able to do that in completion? No, we're not. And so if we want to know what God is like, God the Father, what are some of his characteristics? What are some of the attributes of him that he can even possibly communicate to us? Then where do we look? We look to Jesus Christ, his son, to know those things. Not only does he says he's the image of the invisible God, but he also says he's the firstborn of all creation. Now this is tough because it almost feels like paradoxical. Well, if he's the image of God, and he represents God, and he's representative of God, then how can he also be created? Because God's not created. And so it almost feels paradoxical. Does this mean that Jesus was created? That he did not always exist? That he was the firstborn into creation? 
Well, no, actually. <laughs> we don't have to go very far to refute this. What's the next verse say? For by him all things were created. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, the invisible and the visible. So we want to always, this is just good for all Bible reading, take scripture that's a little less clear and use the very clear scripture to help us understand it. And so whatever firstborn doesn't mean, does mean, it definitely doesn't mean that he was the first to be created because it says by him very clearly all things were created. And so if something's to be created, it has to be created from something that has always been. Jesus was never physically born except for in an incarnation. He has always existed. The overwhelming consensus is that firstborn of creation does not mean like a time and place, but instead it is to talk about a priority of position as it relates to creation. The firstborn of a family was the one who would take the headship of the family, that position in the family. And that headship is what this word, firstborn, is talking about. Psalm 89.27, if you want to turn there, talking about David, God says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. Was David the firstborn in his family? No. Was he the first king? No. And so if he's using these words, this firstborn, But he's not talking about order of birth or even order of kingship. Then it must be something else. And it's a priority of position that above all others, that would be the position that he is in. Verse 16, look down in verse 16, explains why Jesus is declared the firstborn, the first place, the top of all creation, simply because he was the one by all things were created. When it says all, when Paul says all, that by all things were created, he means all. Whether, and he goes on to explain that further. All things, whether in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible. He even goes further. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things. He's trying to emphatically declare that it doesn't matter if you can see it or not, Jesus made it. That he was the creator of it. This is why he's the firstborn over all creation. Because he's the source of all creation. He's the agent of all creation in which it came through him. And as we keep as we keep looking, all things were created through him and for him. He is the goal of all creation. He is the source, the agent, and the goal of all creation. This is why he's the firstborn over all creation. And as he talks about these thrones, these dominions, these rulers and authorities, I think he's kind of going two directions here with his thought. One is that, you know, he's just exalting Jesus to the highest degree that he can. Nothing comes before him. Nothing. But on the second direction, he's also addressing what's called the Colossian heresy. We haven't gone too much into this because 
I know it's going to come up later in our study of Colossians, but he's already starting to kind of address something that was going on in their church because of false teachers. And that's that teachers were coming in and lifting angels up to the place of worship. That there's Jesus, and he's prominent, but he's not preeminent. There's also these angels, and we need to worship these angels as well. And so he's already starting to address that, and he's like, listen, you can call them whatever you want. Whatever rank of angel you want to throw at me. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, whatever it is. They were created by Jesus. And he's starting to address this. They're cre they're, they, those angels, are creatures and nothing more. How about towards creation? Well, they were created, and so they can't do anything to add to creation. And how about towards salvation and perfection? This is what he's really getting at, because he did not want them to look to angels for, for, for salvation or even sanctification. Anything in the spiritual realm in and by itself can contribute nothing. They are only able to render service, which is always in subjection to Christ and through his power. Good angels can't add anything to the fullness of Christ. Amen? Bad angels, evil angels, cannot do anything to separate you from his love. We have to see that. Verse 17 goes on a step further that not only is he, he before all creation or that it's through him that anything was created or that it's all for him that it, anything exists, but that he's also the sustainer of all things. That's what it means. In him, all things hold together, are binded together. This concept alone is the basis of all science. I hope we see that. That anything is predictable is because it's held together. That it's uniform in its creation. We have some scientists that go here that are part of this congregation. And they will tell you that when you in science, the discovery of something is only the discovery of how it's being held together in a uniform fashion. That's all science is, is discovering a truth about how God is holding things together. Think about, you know, when I was in the medical field a few years ago, you, we would learn about all these types of organ systems and how they work collectively to make these meat suits that we have run. But the amount of stuff that's unknown about the body is far more than what's known about the body. Just the eye alone, no, no computer could even come close to the way it works. Or the, you know, I also like the, this idea of the distance that we are from the sun. Many of you guys may know this. If we were any further from the sun, we'd be frozen. If we were any closer, we'd be burned to a crisp. We are the exact distance for life to be sustained. Not only is the, it's the scientific side of creation that we hold that holds all the things together, but it's also the history of the universe that Jesus is holding together. The history of the universe. He is the Alpha and the Omega from beginning to end. But sometimes it feels like it's out of control, right? Like things aren't being held together. Amen? Does your life feel like that? Sometimes. And I like I like the picture 
and I read this, and, uh, and I'm, I'm stealing it, of an, an air traffic controller. You ever seen one of those computers that these guys have? Air traffic controllers? It's just like solid color of all the planes that are flying around. Think about like around uh, Atlanta, the, one of the biggest airports in the world. It's just full. The computer's full, and you're just expecting something to crash into something else. But it's all held together. Exactly. You stay on this plane, you stay on this plane, you go this journey, you go that, you know? And so he's got it, and he's holding it together. It feels like chaos. It looks like chaos sometimes, but he's got it all together. It's an act of sustaining. He's not just a watchmaker. He didn't just make the watch and then walk away. He is continually holding all things together. The rest of Hebrews 1, I read a little part of it, the rest of it comes out. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So, Christ is supreme. He is the firstborn because of his relationship to creation. It was from him and through him and for him, and he's the sustainer of all of it. The second part, he's supreme because he's supreme over reconciliation of creation to himself. And so Paul is doing these two things. He's supreme over creation, and he's supreme over the new creation. Let's go into verse 18. It says that he is the body of the church. He is the body of the, sorry, he's not the body. He is the head of the body, the church. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. This is language that is used elsewhere in scripture. Many of you guys know, right? You think about Romans 12. Romans 12 verse 4 says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. And so the body of Christ is imaged like a, like a human body, and it has many members, like body parts. And they don't all have the same function. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 also talks about this. For just as the body is one, there's one body, and has many body parts, members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. Again, language that is used elsewhere to help us understand, because the, the Bible doesn't really talk about what the church is, but just kind of describes what the church is. And so one of those descriptors is a body. But all those other times in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, it's kind of just helping us understand how the body interacts with itself. That we need each other. That if we were all body, or if we were all fingers, we'd have a hard time getting around. If we had all eyeballs, we'd have a hard time smelling or hearing anything. You, you guys know the picture, right? That we need the diversity to help with the unity. Okay? And so that's what it's talking about most other times. But Paul takes it a little bit further. And he, now, now he talks about the body's relationship to the head. And now we're like, wow, because if you don't have a head, you are dead. You guys knew it? You didn't know that? No. If you don't, believe it or not, 
Don't try this at home. If you don't have a head, you are dead. You can get the body, the human body is pretty amazing. Amen. It can get along in, in this life. It can get along without a lot of its body parts. It can figure things out. Um, it can't get along without a head. It can't. It's impossible. And that's what he's, that's what he's trying to do here. He's, again, how can I put Christ before everything? How can I make him stand out before everything in your mind? Well, I, want to, I want you to think about him like this. That nothing, no life whatsoever can happen in the body without the head. He keeps going in verse 18. He, Jesus, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's, a, that's kind of our big word. Your, your Bible even might have a heading over this section that says something about the preeminence of Jesus. Preeminent just it simply means standing out before everything else. Distinguished. So, he says the firstborn from the dead. And we again, we, this is how we know that it's kind of like there's a parallel thing going on here. Because if you recall back to verse 15, the firstborn of all creation. And now we have Jesus also as the firstborn from the dead. And if we think about it like resurrection, which I think most of our minds go to, that's true. Jesus is the first to be resurrected. Now, there are others in our Bible that were resuscitated, but they came back to the same life. And they were to die again, right? But Jesus was the first to be resurrected in the truest nature of it. That he, when, he was re when he came back from the grave, he was in a glorified body. And he wouldn't die again. He'd actually just ascend to the heavens. Right? And so in a sense, that's a way. But that's not how we used it before in a literal sense. And so we can't use it here like that. So the firstborn like the firstborn of creation, a priority place also has to mean it here, that he is a, he is a, a place of priority over the resurrection. That he is in the first position over the old creation and the new creation. Look at these verses in John. John, John was pretty excited about this idea of the resurrection here. John eleven twenty five. do you have that? Kevin, Jesus said to her, he's talking, I am the resurrection and the life. These are one of, this is one of John's I am statements. I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The resurrection is based in Jesus Christ. First John 5 even goes a little bit further to say, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and where is this life? In his son. Whoever has the son has eternal life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead because resurrection, eternal life, these things are in him. He is the priority, the top place in those things. Continuing in verse 18, that in everything, 
That means that in the old creation, the original creation, and resurrected creation, the new creation, he might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Chapter 2, verse 9 of, of Colossians says, For in him the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily in Jesus. And he's pleased by that. God is pleased by that. He is pleased by that representation. And through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. How? How is that reconciliation? By making peace by the blood of his cross. See, the crowds at Palm Sunday rightfully welcomed their long-awaited-for, prophesied-for Messiah and King, but the deliverance from Roman rule that they were expecting was not fitting to Jesus' supremacy in this way. See, there, the Old Testament is riddled with examples of God taking really less than resources. You think about Gideon. Really less than resources and overwhelming and uh, uh, other kingdoms. And so why wouldn't he do that again if it was just about Roman rule? Why wouldn't he just use some kind of human tool? Sometimes he didn't even use human tools. He just used thunder or lightning and scared people away. Why wouldn't he do that again? This deliverance that Jesus was coming for was the one fitting of the king of all kings. The preeminent one that's over all creation, over all of reconciliation, which begins with reconciling from sin. Only Jesus could accomplish victory over the greatest enemy of all peoples, of all tongues, of all nations. And throughout all of history. This is the preeminence that the crowds missed on this day, this triumphal entry. And that's revealed to us through the Spirit. It's also revealed by the, to the disciples when it says, like, they didn't understand these things when it happened in John. But then after he, he was glorified, he, they, oh, that's what he was talking about. So on this side of all that, we can celebrate the truest part of what he was doing then. We don't have to go back and try to live into what was happening there. We can celebrate from this side. The unexpected crown of thorns that awaited Jesus at the end of this procession is the most glorious and beautiful crown that is deserved of him. No one else could wear that crown, right? No one else could wear that crown of thorns legitimately. It would be a fraud. He is the only one deserving of that crown, that preeminence. And it's really a strange one, isn't it? So, I've saved all my thoughts about application for right now. I didn't do it during. Okay, so stay with me here. How do we become doers of such kind of something that's out there? Yes, God is on the throne like Kevin shared last week. That revelation for imagery. Yes, Jesus is the preeminent one. The one over everything in creation and new creation. But what do we do with that? How does, it, how does the scripture then meet our daily walk? 
how do we live into these glories? Well, I think one thing that's on display here that Jay and I were talking about earlier is the fickleness of our allegiance. The fickleness of our allegiance and understanding that. See, we, we're pretty certain that the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah that would overwhelm Rome and give their, give their land and kingdom back. That, that, that all the oppression, all the physical daily oppression would be over with, with this Messiah. And so when it didn't go that way, when he came in and started flipping the tables in the temple and says, I must actually go to die, they were really confused. How can you overwhelm Rome if you're dead? And so quickly, the people that we're supposed to be identifying with became scoffers. You didn't come to make my life easier, so away with you. And the fickleness of our allegiance. We tend to put creative things. I'm sure you, you guys experience this too. We tend to put creative things at the center of our life. And we push the creator to the side. We tend to put the creative things at the center and push the creator to the side. The false teachers were doing this in Colossae. They were putting angels at the center, pushing the creator of the angels to the side. And Paul's addressing that. But the Jews also had a wrong idea and a wrong expectation about the Messiah that he was coming to put physical comfort, temporal comfort, the created comfort into the center and push the creator to the side. I don't think this is near, this isn't like about belief, like, and, like they lost belief in Jesus. I don't think even the, the people in Colossae that he was writing to, like all of a sudden stopped believing in Jesus. It's like a loss of interest. It's like a married, any, raise your hand if you're married. Raise your hand. Yes. Lots of married people here. And at the beginning, the, the, oh, the, 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 the good feelings in the beginning, all you can think about is the person and, and making them happy and, and, and proving that you are worthy. To be, a, to be a partner, right? You can do all this stuff in, in the beginning, in the honeymoon, in the wedding, and all of it. And it's, it's all you can think about. But then what happens over time? Oh, the schedule gets starts to get a little busy. And then there's kids in the mix. And then there's a job. And, you know, all of a sudden, all these things that were just side things become main things in the marriage what you want to be the main thing becomes the side thing. This is what happens to us. So, I was think, trying to think about another picture about this. And I, I, I thought about this. You guys ever seen Christ the Redeemer, the um, statue in Brazil? Let's you throw the big... So this is it, right? This is huge. This is what I think about, like that marriage picture in the beginning. It's all I can think about. A hundred feet tall, you know, tons and tons of cement above the city, above everything else. This is what, yes, this is it. This is Jesus. But then what we do later is we, we turn into Christ of the abyss. So it's still Christ, but put up the next picture. This is in Key Largo, under the water, barnacles, so, you know, fish swimming around, really miniature. 
And this is what happens in our life. It's, he's still in our life, but it, it, the interest has changed. The interest has changed. So a diagnostic question for you to gauge where you're at. If you were able to pursue all your ambitions, all your hobbies, all your desires, if you were able to pursue them without hindrance, do you think at the end of it you'd be closer to Jesus or further? And so that, that helps us to just put a diagnosis on what's going on. It's not that he's not there. It's just he's not there in his preeminent place. Our affections, I think, are also too small when it comes to the Lord. You know, it reminds me of that C.S. Lewis quote. Maybe some of you guys know that. It's from, um, uh, it comes from his sermon, A Weight of Glory, or his essay, whatever it is. I'm going to read it to you. So listen up. This is C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, like, like they're in the wrong direction and they're too strong in the wrong direction, but he finds them too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased with the created things instead of the creator. So, what do you do? I think one thing is you speak about the riches of God's grace with others. Okay? It's a, all the heavenly, uh, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places have been given to us in Christ. And we speak about that to one another. Because we all know that we forget sometimes. So you speak about that. You talk about that with others. And then... This is the, the, the part about confession and repentance. He, Jesus, is better than all the stuff. All the created things. Jesus is better than that. When we are putting something ahead of him, when we are putting something aside for this, when we are putting him aside for the sake of anything else, the next right step is confession and repentance. But this is where we stop. This is usually where we stop. We know it's right to confess my allegiance to something else over him and to move away from that. But we can get a lot further, a lot closer to worship, a lot closer to victorious living. When we start to ask the question, what is it about that thing that's drawing me? Because that thing in some way represents Jesus, right? He created all things and all things are for him. And so we know something about this is drawing me. But something about this that's drawing me is reflective of him. What is it about him that it is found in this? That helps us get closer to wanting to worship him versus just wanting to avoid the bad things. So ask that secondary question. What is it about this drug or this pleasure or this thing, this created thing that is drawing me? And find out who Jesus is in that. Because it represents him in some way. My closing statement. Palm Sunday reminds us of the nature of the Christian life as one constantly turning back to him for forgiveness. 
for freedom from sin. Palm Sunday keeps us humble because we know our allegiances are fickle. And it prompts us to acknowledge that Christian spirituality is not obviously triumphant and easy. That's what they were expecting. The triumphant, the easy. And it's not, it is those things, but not in the obvious way. It's in the very secret way, the very internal way of dealing with sin. The power of Christ is the power of his cross. And this is what animates us. This is what, this is how rain in our lives is detected. We forsake the well-tread ways of the world and our disordered desires. And we give our allegiance to him. Palm Sunday reminds us that the pattern of Christ's reign is to be crucified to this world and surrender to the Father that's in heaven and find everything we need for life and godliness in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we... We don't want... to be making mud pies in a slum when you're offering holidays by the sea. And so, Lord, by your spirit, by your grace, we ask that you would reveal to us those areas in which we've given our allegiance away to. And we've sought the created over the one who is over all things. Lord, we desire to live Passion Week this, this week ahead of us with just a, a laser beam focus on who you are. in totality the friendship certainly that we have with you but also your authority your 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 supreme we want we want to take it all in and allow it to morph our affections for you and we know this is something that only your spirit does so we, we invite, we ask, we beg, we plead. Make us more into your image. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen.